0: Damaged Goods Podcast Ah yes, welcome to part two, numero dos Round two of the Conspiracies in Music Podcast episodes on Damaged Goods I'm your host, Jake the Snake A.K.A. Jack the Snack A.K.A. Jake Frazik That's my real name that most people can't pronounce So I go by the nicknames, the snake man and if you listened to last week's episode, and if you haven't, do that before you listen to this one, that was part one of the Conspiracies in Music podcast, that I'm doing this silly, weird, ominous voice to make it feel eerie and ominous. Last episode, I had many failed attempts at mimicking the X-Files theme music, the do-do-do-do, and I'm way off for a few reasons, the main one being that I really never watched the show, and two, my... Theme music mimicking skills ain't what they used to be. Probably a good thing because it would get taken off iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or wherever the fuck. The first installment of this was more on the lighter side. I was using in a fun way the word fun conspiracies that exist in the realm of music. Uh, By fun I meant ones without heavy magnitude if they were true or not. And as I said, the first time, disclaimer... I'm not saying these are true. I'm not saying they're not true. I'm interested in this shit. Even artists I didn't give a flying fuck about musically. I find myself interested in these kind of stories. Some of the ones I mentioned in the first episode were more of a folklore, urban legend. The ones I will tackle in this are grounded in a little bit more reality. There is more substantiating evidence to suggest that these are real, or possibly not saying they are, not saying they aren't. Don't come at me. But um, the word conspiracy theory and the ideas of conspiracies in the last five, I don't know, five years have definitely gotten more popular in the the common lexicon in pop culture. These might not be the ones that are those kind of common reoccurring themes you see on social media and here in the news and stuff like that. Even to hear major news stations say the word conspiracy, conspiracy theories. Kind of humorous to me. Um, but these are ones that I, I've been interested in and I've read about many times. And anytime I see a documentary, a YouTube clip, a story, a, 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 something about it, I want to read it or listen to it just to see how it adds up. When I was a wee lad when I was deeper in the conspiracy theories and not so much these days, and have weeded out what I have personally deemed to be less substantive, less real, and the ones that are more real. Um, one thing I always did was it was cross-reference as much as I could. I was obsessed with the JFK assassination. Obsessed with the JFK assassination. In fifth grade, my mother took me to see the, the movie JFK by Oliver Stone. Fantastic film. Because she kind of always believed that you know shit didn't add up. And I was so into it. And in uh, my homeroom class in fifth grade, we had to do some kind of project. I built a replica of Dealey Plaza which is the area in Dallas where he was murdered. I built, you know, out of cardboard, different buildings, the grass, you know, the book depository. I used action figures and cars to replicate the whole thing. I mean, I knew this shit like the back of my hand. And throughout the years, even still now, I always read and listen to anything about that. And you cross-reference shit to see how many times this story comes up, this little aspect of this of, of the conspiracy comes up, how few times this one comes up. Do they overlap? Do they add up? What did this person say against it? Well, why would that person say it? What's their backstory? Why would this person support it? I think if you're doing any research, historical, or if you're a journalist, which I'm not, I'm just a writer, just an author, just a storyteller, not a journalist, if you kind of cross reference things, you can weed out stuff that might not be so real and, you know, find out what is the real chunky meat and potatoes of it all. And uh, the ones I'm going to discuss on this episode the second part of it i've definitely read and listened to many times over out of pure interest and then you kind of kind of amass a greater understanding about what is what is real what is not and and what might have been just kind of funny conjecture so we're going to get into that in just a second and we'll delve into the second part all right kurt and courtney courtney and kurt talking about, Kurt Cobain, frontman of Nirvana, Courtney Love, frontwoman of Hole, the band Hole, and also she went on to do some acting, some acting, Uh, this one, I don't know, I suggest anybody, even if you're not a fan of the two, maybe you're just interested in conspiracy theories and music, or... Or into uh, grunge rock or what have you, or love stories. The doc, Curtin Courtney. It's directed by British documentarian Nick Broomfield. He's done a slew of great music documentaries, actually. Uh, a very, very good one on the murders of Big and Pac. A good one on Whitney Houston. But he has a very good one on Curtin Courtney called Curtin Courtney. The theory that was. Um, I, was, I guess it was, I don't know who presented the theory first. I don't want to speak out of turn here. But um, Tom Grant, who was a private investigator that Courtney Love herself had hired to find Kirk Cobain after um, he had ran away. He was in a rehab center. You know, he struggled on and off with, with heroin. Uh, The both of them did. Um, He had ran away from a rehabilitation center following his first suicide attempt. So he did have a suicide attempt prior to him dying. Um, This dude, Tom Grant, was a private investigator that she had hired. And through his investigation and what he found, he had posed a theory that Courtney Love, the wife of Kurt Cobain, was responsible for her husband's death. Not necessarily her her pulling the trigger or the shotgun that killed the man, but that she was behind it somehow. Um, he claimed that uh, Kirk Cobain himself could not have actually pulled the shotgun's trigger because there was too much heroin in his system. Uh, I don't know if you've ever shot any guns or a shotgun. It, some guns have very feather touch triggers, a lot of handguns do, a lot of modern guns. Some shotguns, a little more so to pull the trigger, depending on what model is it. Is this an old shotgun? Is it a new one? Was it well kept? Was it not? We don't I don't know. I mean, someone probably knows. I don't know. But he's saying that he had too much dope in his system to pull the shotgun. Now I don't fuck with opiates. The Snake Man may have dabbled or and or dabbles in various substances. I don't fuck with opiates. I don't like downers. I'm down enough as it is. I don't really need to get down. I've had people in my family and, and friends um who are very much into opiates and heroin uh succumb to that shit die from it, this and that. I've been around a lot of people on heroin. It lulls you out, it dulls you down, you're you're nodding off, you're scratching, you're itchy, you're tired, you're not up and at them. This ain't an amphetamine. This is not an upper. It's not even like like booze, which is a downer but makes people kind of act erratic and crazy. People on heroin, that's why, like, if you ever see, like, you know, people leaning over in the street, they call it dope fiend lane. you know, it, it sedates you. It's hard to probably do a lot under the influence of heroin. Now, you could pull a, a trigger of a gun on it, perhaps. I don't know. It depends how much. Grant, the P.I. here, says, nah, too much dope in Kurt Cobain's system to have pulled the trigger. He also thought that the suicide note that Kurt Cobain left was fake. A lot of Nirvana fans, Kurt Cobain fans, were very eager to take this theory of face value. You got to think, his fans, especially at the time, I remember this. His fans were very serious fans. Anybody who's a super fan of of a of musical artist. Um, They could believe a lot When it's your favorite artist Maybe this artist Helped you through Some tough times in life With their music You know Maybe you even felt That both of you If you ever met in real life Might connect on a deeper level You're so similar It's speaking directly to you It's as if the music Was written for you I mean we're talking now Borderline stands. You know Crazy fans A lot of these fans Were already kind of upset That Courtney Love's band They released their album Live Through This uh, Days after his death Now I know from the music industry, labels have schedules, release dates. To move shit around fucks up the label's entire roster because they've got other release dates for different artists. You know, all scheduled contingent upon each other. They space it out so it, it it balances and flows for them. They're looking at their whole roster, their whole business, not you know just from the perspective of one artist. So perhaps it was, hey man, this is the release date. Your album's coming out, or your husband just died from a suicide. Tough shit. Days after your album's coming out. Some artists have leeway with their labels. They can say, hey, now, push it it around. Sometimes just because of a personal reason or a silly little artistic thing, something of this magnitude of seriousness, maybe they would have been like, hey, okay, we'll push the album around. Whatever it was, album doesn't get pushed around. It comes out days after his death. And a lot of Nirvana fans were like, yo, what the fuck? Uh, And the belief was that she had hired a hitman to kill Kurt Cobain because there was a divorce on the horizon. Apparently, people are in the know inside. They had been speaking about a divorce or Kurt had been speaking about a divorce. Things had not been going smooth in their relationship. It was very rocky and he had been wanting to get his way out. Some also felt that maybe... now. Mind you, Kurt Cobain, at that time, Nirvana is like the biggest fucking rock band. They were the band that wasn't trying to be big and crossover to superstardom and commercialized. But they became that without really having to concede anything. They didn't try to go mainstream, but they were huge. Almost reluctantly, it felt like, coming from their perspective. She's married to the biggest rock star in the time. She's an aspiring rock star. You know her band's doing some things, got some traction but not nearly where Nirvana was, and she aspired to more. I mean, she would you know, eventually jump into a, an acting career in Hollywood. So maybe it's that she sees her ticket to stardom is being married to the biggest rock star at the time. And that, God, if a divorce happened, I would probably lose my ticket to stardom. Maybe if there's a, a way where, yes, you know, my, my we don't get divorced, but something tragic was to happen, um, I can still skyrocket to a, a larger platform. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just trying to theorize this from the perspective of a potential uh, guilty party in this conspiracy. But the Seattle Police Department and a lot of people close to Kirk Cobain, including the manager of Nirvana, Danny Goldberg, they disagreed with the theory. They just didn't buy it. Nothing much materialized of it. Uh, Courtney Love would go on to do a lot with Hole, her band, and become a big-time actor, and whatever. Her career would be what it was, or what it is, you know, still going on. We don't really have any conclusion to that. There's been nothing to follow up with that. No new evidence, to my knowledge, after um, this dude Tom Grant's theories and, and that documentary. Next on the docket, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix's manager killed him. This is an interesting one to me. Um, there was a lot of artists in that time period, uh, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, probably blanking on a few more, and then down the line there would be the Kirk Cobain, the, the, the Pac and Biggies. That 26-year-old, 27-year-old age, a lot of these very famous artists died, and it was a big deal that they were all in the same age. Age range and it would be talked about a lot. Back then, Jimmy's manager, a dude named Michael Jeffrey, is well documented as being a former MI6 member. MI6 is uh England's equivalent to the CIA. In America, if you're in the CIA and you are now out of it, you're really never out of the CIA. Probably the same for the FBI. You're kind of always in there. Even if you're not an active agent, you're intertwined with the people that still are. They've got dirt over you because of whatever you did for them. And you still have relations there. Maybe, you know, you're not an active agent doing whatever missions they are, but if they wanted something from you or if you wanted something and you needed their help, I'm sure they'd be willing to give it to you. So he was a documented former, possibly still active MI6 member. Um, and Jimi Hendrix was found with, initially would say was just barbiturates in the system causing the overdose, he was known to take a lot of different substances. Obviously, smoke weed, a lot of hallucinogens, LSD, and heroin. Barbiturates, uh, you know, are a different property than opiates or or hallucinogens. Sometimes, when you mix things like that, you can OD. Sometimes people don't mix those things all at once. They'll do them differently. Like, okay, I'm doing this today. I'm doing that tomorrow. Or I started on this. I'm going to do this at the end of the night. Um, it, it was very much accepted as a tragic overdose and an accident for a long time. And then in around 2009, and I think this theory was out before 2009, but in 2009, there's a book called Rock Roadie by this dude, James Tappy Wright. Um, and he explained that Hendrix's manager, Michael Jeffrey, murdered the guitarist. He claimed that uh, Michael Jeffrey had force fed drugs to Hendrix. So he could collect the life insurance. Uh, Jeffrey, I guess, was afraid he was going to be replaced with a different manager. And at the time, you know, Hendrix had a short career, but he was fucking hot shit, dude. Fresh out the fish grease, sizzling, dude. He was a big money. And I guess the theory is that this ex-MI6 agent was worried he was going to be replaced as a manager. And he had somehow become, and I'm not sure how, the beneficiary of Jimi Hendrix's two million dollar life insurance policy. Which is odd, I don't know how that happened. I mean, you know, sometimes artists aren't the keenest when it comes to the technical terms in legal contractual obligations, and you know, they're the artist man, they're just being creative, and they maybe they sign shit over, maybe they don't understand what someone's telling them, so they just say, okay, okay, whatever. Maybe he just signed the shit over, to this dude his life insurance policy I don't know either way that's the case this guy was the guy who was going to get the 2 million dollar life insurance policy and this is what this uh this this rotary um James Wright claims is that Michael Jeffrey confessed this to him in 1971 saying that he had to do it hard to say Michael Jeffrey the the former manager had since died in a plane crash over France in 1973, so we really can't hear his defense, his, 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 any more testimony he could give. We, you know, it kind of sealed the deal. The case is closed, and nothing really has come from it further. I do know that Jimi Hendrix's estate is not super um, giving when it comes to his music being used in films. There was a really good, I thought. Uh, Hendrix film starring Andre 3000 of Outcast fame taking place in just the last year of, of Hendrix's life. Or, or no, maybe it's the first year of his stardom, I forget. Either way, just one year of the person's life, which I think actually is great for a biopic. They could not use any of the original Hendrix music. They had to use a lot of his covers, which, you know, like songs like Along the Watchtower, which is a Bob Dylan song, It's a cover. So a lot of songs people do know from Hendrix were covers. They could use that, but they couldn't use any of the original shit. And I think still to this day, that's how that goes. And uh, the last one we'll tackle in this, we'll go into more depth uh, because it's something that's fascinated me a lot since I was a a wee lad in Nevis and St. Kitts and uh, just being a big fan of reggae music. The CIA killed Bob Marley. I I had to like let out a little uh, laugh. So let me give not because I don't believe it, but just because it's a it's a large claim, it's a bold claim, and it's one that's been substantiated by a lot. Um, and I think there was a documentary on Netflix a couple years ago called "I uh, Who Shot the Sheriff" or something like that. Going into it, but I don't know how in depth it really went. I probably should have watched it, but I've read a lot about it. But I want to give a little backstory on. Uh, Jamaica at the time, and how that feeds into the the theory here. So, Jamaica in the seventies, um, in before that, and even after that, was very split politically, viciously split. It, we should say, with two parties, and these two parties had a lot um, uh, uh, of support that they would they would garner to get them in office to get votes. At very vicious costs, utilizing people uh, of essentially of the the slums of of Jamaica and various cities garrisons, if you will, which is a kind of a term for an area that would be a voting district or a district under certain, you know, certain shattas, certain drug lords or or what have you. Um, Edward Siega, he was the head of the Jamaican Labour Party, and Michael Manley was the head of the People's National Party. These are leaders of Jamaica's two warring political parties who were both known for arming these young men in the garrisons to wage war basically to help corner the votes to edge their political faction of choice to victory uh siega uh, the jamaican labor party a little more conservative party you know a, a little more um i guess just not socialist not communist the pnp the people's national party under manley was more socialist i mean they were in open communication with castro in cuba in fact, Cuban soldiers had even came to Jamaica to train some people, possibly for a revolution there, and uh, it's known that they made some fairly disparaging remarks that the men were not fit or ready to be, what they would say, real revolutionaries. Um, why or so that was, I don't, I don't know. We're not getting into it, but that's just a little, a little extra tidbit. But there was big worry in Jamaica, uh, in the United States, rather. And mind you, the U.S. You know, is on this whole... Stop communism at all costs, shit everywhere from Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, to Central America, to South America, anywhere, Cuba, anywhere, especially that was close. Uh, and they would align themselves with whatever parties were opposing the socialist or communist um, uprisings, or not even uprisings here in Jamaica, just any s- slight surge they thought was, was, was building. So there was big worry that Jamaica may try to go communist or socialist. America aligned more with Sega and the JLP. Even Gary Webb, a legendary journalist who's now dead, he's the guy who broke the Iran-Contra affair about the CIA putting crack in the ghettos to fund the Sandinistas and the wars down there against communism, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting only to commit suicide days later from a double shotgun blast to the back of the head. Because that's how everyone commits suicide, shooting themselves in the back of the head. Even Gary Webb had, had... stated that he believed this to be true and and offered evidence such, supporting it. Um, And then there was, uh, way later in the game, there was like stories circulating that uh, there was a former agent of the CIA, this dude named Bill Oxley, had confessed that he had killed Bob Marley. A deathbed confession. That the CIA was responsible for infecting Marley with a cancerous virus and bacteria. If you don't know, Bob Marley died of cancer, a cancer that started in his toe, spread through his foot, and would eventually kill him slowly. Uh, Bob, being Rasta, was not keen into much Western medicine and treatments for the cancer, R- wrote it out the best he could until it you know, took him down. Cancer will take you fucking down. Um, and then there's this Bob Marley documentary I mentioned on Netflix, which indicates that the CIA admitted to keeping tabs on Marley, as, as they did. Any of the other books they referenced in the first episode of this, which I'll again reference in the end, the CIA was keeping tabs on not just political leaders, but musicians that had influence over the people that might align themselves with certain political people, political leaders. So the CIA had been keeping tabs on Marley in the 70s because he was very influential, not just in Jamaica and the West of the West Indies and in Caribbean, but over in England and in the United States. And it helped make fans kind of believe, yeah, maybe maybe the CIA is behind this. Uh, there's a lot of people who have tried to debunk this theory. It was found that this dude, Bill Oxley, never uh, was associated with the CIA. The photo that was used in the stories that circulated was a stock photo from a foolish photographer, actually. So that's a little that's a little you know a little bit of a bummer if you're if you're really clinging to the, the conspiracy theory in this case. That story might not have been true about this dude Bill Oxley, but Marley did pass away from brain cancer that started all the way from the infection in his toe. And I'll get back to that, but there was also an assassination attempt on his life in 1976 after the this, uh, w- this one love concert where, you know, very famous Bob Marley would unite the hands of Manley and Sega in Jamaica on stage with rival factions of these two, you know, various political factions there, a lot of various rude boys with beef there. Um, the, the, the gunman ran up in his crib. They shot at Bob, his manager, some associates. He wasn't killed, obviously, but he was wounded, and so was his manager and friends. Two of the gunmen that were involved with this had claimed that they were contracted by the CIA in exchange for guns and drugs, which is textbook CIA. We're going to supply you with arms for these these coups. And sometimes they supply drugs like the Iran Contraffier. Drugs can be used to, to make money, which help fuel whatever um, uprising the, the CIA would have, You know, whatever coup the CIA would prefer. And uh, one of the, these gunmen was a gentleman by the name of Christopher Koch. You might recognize his name. If you don't, you might have heard of the infamous Shower Posse. He would become the leader of the Shower Posse, which in the 80s and early 90s, would become not only huge in Jamaica as a large criminal organization, but in the United States, huge fucking powerful drug uh, empire in the United States, cocaine and marijuana. Because, you know, there was a lot of marijuana always coming from Jamaica, but cocaine started flowing through as a a stopover port. A lot of islands in the Caribbean, Antigua, um, would also be one that would come from South America into the United States. So that would only allow any criminal enterprise in Jamaica to now make more money, which they could use for whatever they want, funding it to buy more guns, to fund whatever political war they wanted, or just for drug money to live a lavish life. In America, the shower Posse was notorious for shooting the shit out of things, like vicious, you know, not adhering to certain... Street codes that maybe like, you know, the Italian mafia or the Irish mob or black street gangs or, or, or anything. It was just shootouts wild. Shoot anybody there. No fucking care. Women, children, don't matter. Civilians, I don't give a fuck type shit. You know, it's very sensationalized in the news, but still very ruthless. Anyway, Christopher Coke would become the leader of the shower posse. A Very hard man to get in Jamaica, to, to imprison. Authorities struggle with it. He was very powerful. Very powerful. And um, Koch himself would die years later, years later, in the early 90s in prison, very strangely in prison, in a mysterious prison fire. Not anyone else died in this fire. The, the whole prison did not burn down, but he burned to death. Perhaps he knew a little too much about the CIA and their connection. Perhaps the CIA had other people that had been an extension of them in Jamaica in that prison. Working for them, maybe some money reaches them. Maybe they're on the lower tier of things, but money reaches them from higher-ups, and higher-ups, hey, take this dude out. We don't want him to open his mouth. You know, maybe he's in there for a long time. He's like, look, I want to get out of prison. What if I talk and talk about this and that? Well, he's shut up. He's silenced in jail. Nothing comes of it. So, I mean, it's not so wild to think that the CIA could have contributed to his death, Marley's death. He died in 83. The cancer became infecting him before that, though. Uh, Michael Manley of of the PNP party in Jamaica, uh, back before Bob Marley's death, his forces, when he was the uh, acting president or prime minister, I don't know, I should probably know, when he was the acting leader of Jamaica, his forces intercepted a shipment of 500 machine guns from a a known right-wing group with known CAA ties that had been trafficking cocaine and heroin into Jamaica. They just somehow come upon 500 machine guns coming in. You know those machine guns are going to the opposing factions to wage war and battle upon uh, Manley's forces. Very famous uh, in Bob Marley's song "Rat Race," great song. He very, very famously sings, "Rasta don't work for no CIA," which is almost like a, a bold proclamation, as if he knew, you know, that these dudes had tried to kill him in his first assassination attempt. Um, and. Uh, the, 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 the real, the meat of, of this conspiracy boils down to how Bob gets the cancer in his toe that spreads to his foot, that spreads to his brain, that kills him. They're doing a documentary on Bob. A big film crew is coming from the U.S., some people from England. There's a gentleman on the, on the crew, on the set. His name is Carl Kobe. He's part of the crew that came to, to do the documentary. This gentleman, Carl Kobe, was the son of a CIA agent named William Kobe. Now, it's not proven that Carl Kobe himself was in the CIA, but his father, it was shown, William Kobe was. They're hanging out, and it was a gift that Carl Kobe gave to Bob Marley of a pair of boots. And very customary in Jamaican and West Indian culture, you, you know, you give a gift of some kind. The person will, if it's a piece of clothing or something, they might try it on right there or what have you to express the gratitude or whatever. Bob puts the boots on. He feels a prick. And this is spoken from the people around him, his friends and what have you at the time. Ah, oh, a prick. Ow. On his toe. Pulls it out. There's like a piece of wire, like a metal wire in one of the boots. The same boot that would be on his foot, where the toe cancer would later come, and he goes, "Ow!" He's bleeding a little. Seems inconsequential. No one makes much note of it at the time, but it, but it happened. Now, Bob Marley's manager, Don Taylor, would say later in his memoirs that a, a CIA, a senior CIA agent, had been planted amongst that film crew. Um, maybe he's referring to Carl Kobe. And. The theory is that on that wire, that metal thing, maybe some kind of cancerous agent, chemical of some kind was there. So you put your foot in, pricks your toe, cuts you. It gets in your body and it spreads slow. Um, there's also a legend has it that two of the gunmen that had taken part in the assassination attempt had been captured, tracked down or whatever by uh, you know friends and other rude boys on Bob's side and they had brought them to Marley and to Don Taylor, like, yo, these are the, some of the motherfuckers that were involved in your assassination attempt. You know, do you want to take them out? Which Bob uh, apparently reportedly denied he wanted to do. He, he did not want to kill them. These guys would later. Uh, but uh, that they had confessed in, in front of Bob Marley and his manager, Don Taylor, that they had taken part in the attempted assassination and that the CIA had been involved in their dealings. Like I said, Bob denied any serious medical treatment for the cancer. And if you think about it, no bullets are needed. No bloodshed, mission accomplished. If that cancer spreads through your toe to your brain and fucking kills you. Um, Some of these books to read that I referenced in the first episode. I suggest you read these if you're interested at all in any of this stuff. Very great books. The Covert War Against Rock. By Alex Constantine, again in depth it talks about conspiracies revolving around the deaths of Tupac, Bob Marley, Biggie Smalls, John Lennon, Peter Tosh, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Michael Hutchins of NXS, which is actually a very interesting one that I knew nothing about, also the FBI war on Tupac Shakur and other black leaders by John Patash which very much goes in depth to the Bob Marley story I just spoke about, as well as Labyrinth by Randall Sullivan, spelled with a capital L, capital A, like la Barinth, about the murders, unsolved murders of Tupac and Biggie, uh, which has been made into a horrible movie called Labyrinth with Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker that you should never, ever watch. Just get the fucking book. Trust me, it sucks. Don't waste two hours of your life. So those are some of the conspiracy theories in music. There's more that I didn't get into, but those were the the heavier ones that I wanted to touch on. Not saying they're true, not saying they're untrue, just some things that I've been interested with, fascinated with. Perhaps you are too. Hopefully me reporting on this won't have anything happen to me. Nowadays, though, they don't really got to kill you. They don't got to shoot you down in Dealey Plaza. Uh, All they got to do is smear you. But the snake man flies under that radar. I'm not that grandiose. So should be all good. Thanks for tuning in to Damage Goods. If I do die, blame this fucking episode.